Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 378. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 378 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated producer, engineer, Ryan Ulliate, who's worked with Tom Petty, George Harrison, the Traveling Wilburys, Mick Fleetwood and Friends, as well as ELO and many, many others. Ryan Ulliate coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about just doing it. There are many things in life one can do, one can involve yourself in. And of course, I'm going to drive this conversation to the audio side of things. But just to set it up, let's say we're talking about Scotland. You can read about Scotland all you want. You can watch all the videos you want. You can talk to people about it who've been there. But there is no substitute for actually going there. There is no substitute for experiencing what it is that that country has to offer. Now, I just picked Scotland out of out of my hat there, but it could be any place. It's the same for audio. Why do I bring that up? Well, I am a huge fan of all of my friends and peers out there who have great services for us to learn from. They provide us great education, a little bit of entertainment, and I'm talking about Pyramix, Mix with the Masters, Produce Like a Pro, Mix Down Online, all of my friends out there who are doing great work. There's also a ton of videos on YouTube from various people. Some good, uh, some not so good, and some just outright full of shit. But when it comes to actually getting involved in audio, when you just go out and pick up some gear or go intern in a studio or work with a mentor one-on-one and experience it for yourself, there is nothing like it. You immediately start to grasp the concepts very rapidly. Your brain starts to adjust and realize, oh, okay, this is how this works. This, you know, whether it's like signal flow things or uh, the concepts of compression. If you're using a compressor, you can watch a YouTube video all you want on using a compressor, but until you actually start twisting the knobs or moving the, the, the user interface on a plugin, you really don't know because you have to experience it. And the reason this comes up is, as I reported in a previous episode, my trip to Los Angeles to hang with Steve Jenowick, Dave Way, and the, the folks over at PMC Speakers, you know, I was trying to get myself up to speed and educated on Dolby Atmos. I was kind of running into some brick walls. I was watching some YouTube videos and I was like, hmm, this is okay. Uh, that doesn't seem right. I don't understand this. Uh, uh, you know, I definitely read the Dolby documents and that was helpful. But nothing prepared me for how quickly I would pick it up by just actually going and experiencing it with some other person. Sitting and working with somebody one-on-one -on -one to explain it and to see their workflow, to see the signal flow, to understand how the Dolby renderer connected to Pro Tools, hearing it in a great room, in multiple great rooms, and hearing the same mix across those rooms, in addition to hearing it on a consumer system, it gave me the full picture. And maybe that's a function of how I operate. I, I find that I get concepts better when I can understand the beginning, the middle, and the end. You know, why we're doing it, how it works, where it's going, what are the steps in between? That said, it also gave me a clear picture of how it, it's going to work in my life, how it's going to work in my audio business. And having experienced all that, having understood all of the, the mechanics of it and how it could work for me, I just also started to get a little bit tired of hearing people tell me how it wasn't going to work, how it was going to be a failure. And I just have to roll my eyes every time I hear it. Every time I read something on a forum that says, oh, you know, we had quad and five one, that's not going to work. You know, it's a lot easier to just sit on the sidelines and bitch. 
right? But it's a lot harder to get involved and see how it works and take a chance. So it's like saying, well, yeah, I, I got into a car accident one time in a, in a Subaru. Therefore, I don't drive in Subarus anymore. It's like, really? Come on. That's ridiculous. So by participating, I think you get a true sense of what it's like. And, and here's another uh, analogy for you. It's like, if you watch TV and you see bad things happen, you know, let's, uh, I don't know, let's say you watch a news report about pickpockets in London. And then you say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm never going to go to London because, uh, you know, I don't want to get pickpocketed. That's one story. That's not like, it's like a, a mass problem. You should still go to London and you should still explore it and see what it has to offer. It's the same thing in audio. Just because a format didn't work out doesn't mean the next iteration or the, the version 2.0 or 3.0 is going to be a failure. So I know this is turning into kind of a mixed rant here, but I'll say this for those on the sidelines that are telling me how it's not going to work. Great. Stay on the sidelines. There's going to be more work for the rest of us, right? That's my attitude about that. But in general, just to kind of cap this off, experiencing in real life is so important. You can watch YouTube videos till you're blue in the face. You can subscribe to every great service there is out there. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't subscribe to that stuff or watch that stuff, but complement it with the actual participation. Get out there and do stuff, meet people. It pertains really to anything. It's not just audio. It's like, you just got to get out and experience things, interact with people. And then if it doesn't work, it's okay. Failure is the great teacher, right? It's like, okay, well, that's how you don't do it. If I had used some of that mentality that I'm bitching about here with my last studio and said, well, okay, I, you know, I'm not going to participate in recording anymore because I had a studio and, and I failed and my ego got bruised. No, I figured out, okay, well, that's how that doesn't work for me. Let me figure out another way to do this. Another way that makes more sense, you know, obviously economically and business wise, but also will enable me to continue to do audio in a quality way in the way I want to do it. That's the difference. You could sit on the sidelines and watch YouTube videos and complain or you can actually go out, meet with people, experience life, do things, experience success and failure, and then retool, change direction, and figure out what works for you. I know, I'm gonna get off my high horse now, but I think you get where I'm going with all this. So try it, don't be an naysayer. Don't sit on the sidelines and bitch. Get out there and participate. That's my rant, thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know, if you don't know them, is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com.
I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Ryan Ulyate here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. I'm glad you are. We have to thank Pete Droge for introducing us. Pete is a longtime listener, and he's somebody that I knew about before the podcast as a musician, as an artist, and he one day reached out to me, and I was like, holy crap, that's Pete Droge. That's pretty cool. So we stay in touch, and uh, I really, really value his opinion. So when he recommended you, I said, absolutely. Whatever Pete thinks, I'm going to go with. Yeah, and I met Pete through a mutual friend who lives up in Vashon Island. And as it turns out, I didn't know this, but Pete had opened for the Heartbreakers in the Dogs with Wings tour in uh, 1995, which was the tour where they first toured the Wildflowers album. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that, that doesn't surprise me that he opened up for the Heartbreakers and Tom. And we're going to talk about Tom because that's a, a major part of your world, it appears, from my research. But I want to start with a little bit of backstory. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Santa Monica and Malibu and West L.A. and then Newport Beach, <laughs> eventually. But pretty much L.A. L.A. kid, born in Santa Monica, born and raised here. My dad was a clarinet player in the 20th Century Fox Orchestra. So he played on all those great movies with Alfred and Lionel Newman back in the 50s. And he also had a big band called the Elliott Brothers Orchestra with my uncle Lloyd. My dad's name was Bill Elliott. And so I think growing up in this family made a big difference and it kind of influenced me. So you stated to me in our connections that we were making prior to this interview that he was a big influence. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's funny because he was such a bigger-than-life guy, my dad. You know, he had his own airplane, and he was just a really successful guy. He worked really hard, and he passed when I was 13 years old. He was 49. And I really hadn't shown any interest in music until that point. And then he was gone, and there was just this void and I just picked up on it. I started just trying to teach myself how to play. I got a tape recorder, and my mom bought me a TAC A1500U reel-to-reel tape recorder that had sound on sound, so you could bounce one channel to the other. I just messed around with it and started recording things, and I just became fascinated with tape recorders. So from that point forward, tape recorders and music were just really important to me. My dad had this old mono tape recorder that he kept in the closet because he also had another side project. He had a band called the Hollywood Saxophone Quartet, and they would play classical music, him and three of his buddies who were really great players, just to keep good on sight reading because it was so important in the job that they did. They had a mono Revere tape recorder, and I think I discovered that in the closet when I was like six or seven. And I just remember holding up the microphone, and that was my that was my 2001 moment. You know, that was like, oh my God, this is just something powerful. There's something really <laughs> important here. And so, you know, so I have that moment when I saw my first tape recorder at a, at a very young age, and I just started messing with them all the time, doing that and having my dad not be around anymore. It just kind of made me able to chart my own course in music. 
I learned to play crappy drums, and then I got in a crappy garage band, and then they already had a crappy drummer, so I learned to be a crappy bass player in a crappy garage band. <laughs> and then, you know, you can't really write songs playing bass, so I learned how to play crappy piano and crappy guitar. So I became half-assed on the rhythm instruments, and also I had these tape recorders, so it just was kind of a natural progression to being a recording engineer. Which you have not spent your time being a crappy recording engineer. <laughs> no, I, I think I'm a better recording engineer than I am a instrumentalist, let's put it that yeah. way. Was there ever kind of a, a battle in your head about, well, I want to be a musician, and I mean, obviously your dad was that, and I'm sure that that held some weight in your mind, but at the same time, you're being pulled into the direction of audio and recording. Was that ever a struggle for you to come to the conclusion that, well, actually, I think I'm going to be a recording engineer? Well, the thing about the recording thing is I was just such a nerd. It's such a great geeky thing. Like one of the things I did when I was a kid is I used to build model kits. You know, I'd get those model kits and just, I'd love following the instructions. And I really liked doing little tedious, slow moving things that eventually you end up with something wonderful. You spend all these days working on this 1965 GTO AMC 125th scale model, and you do everything. You can put like the little string to make the wires that go into the on the engine block for the spark plugs. <laughs> I mean, you can go crazy, right? And you spend all this time, this kind of delayed gratification, and at the very end, you've got this amazing thing. Since I like that so much, the mechanicalness of it and the geekiness of it, engineering just appealed to me probably more than being a musician, only in the sense that I just didn't have the discipline to practice. It was more fun for me to plug in things and build things and solder stuff than it was to sit there and just do the kind of practice you've got to put in to get any good at anything. So I just fell into it. But the good news is that with that, it's that you're still around music. I mean, in the end, you are a musician. If you're any good at this, you have to be. Yeah. And unlike the model building that you were doing where there were directions in the world of recording, there really aren't any directions per se. So how did you find your way into doing it? I don't want to say the correct way, but a way that made the, the music shine that you were working on. Well, that's a really interesting question because when it came to the recorders and all that stuff, I was self-taught. I got a tape recorder like, me you know, I'm 12. I'm trying to figure it out. And then when I went off to college, my mom got me as a college present a TAC 3340S four-track with SimulSync. Oh, yeah. I'm like, this was like, man, you could go 15 nips. You could do seven tracks. If you could do three tracks, bounce it to one, then two more tracks, bounce that down, and then two more, and that's seven. I still have this. This is my TAC AX20 mixdown panel. It has four RCA inputs on one side and then two outputs on the top. And then you could decide which one of these four things went to the center or the left or the right. And I still kind of keep it on my board just to kind of remind me of my roots. So I pretty much learned all the engineering on my own. Hmm. At some point, there was a class. I was living in Seattle, going to college. And there was a class by an organization called the Recording Institute of America. They would book out a local studio. The studio is called K. Smith, which is like a really big studio in Seattle. And you'd go there one night a week and you'd learn from recording engineers how to actually work in a real studio, you know, how to work a real board. And so I got a little bit of that kind of training, but pretty much I was still self-taught because I put together a little studio where I was living up in Washington State. I had a piano. I had some organs. My dad had a Farfisa organ like Pink Floyd used to play, compact duo, mm. clavinet. So I was writing my own songs and recording them all just kind of on my own. And that's kind of how I, I taught myself. What would you consider your first professional gig and what was it as a recording professional? First professional gig was foot in the door after pounding the pavement. Came back to L.A. when I was like... 20 and hit every recording studio in town several times and finally got my foot in the door at a place called Studio Sound Recorders in Studio City. And the owner named George was a record producer. George was, let's put it this way, he wasn't very easy on his assistant engineers. <laughs> so there was a high turnover 
at Studio Sound Recorders. And it just so happened I showed up on the day that someone got fired. I remembered my interview with him. It was, it was a great interview. He goes, um, well, do you know anything about this? And I said, well, yeah, I, I know a little bit. And he goes, do you know how to align a 24-track machine? I said, no. He goes, you don't know shit. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> and I said, but I can learn. <laughs> he said, why should I hire you? And I said, this is why you should hire me. I want to make records. I spent my whole life getting ready for this point. What you do here is what I want to do, and I will do whatever it takes. And he goes, whatever it takes? I said, yeah, whatever it takes. He goes, okay, clean up that reception room. So I spent the next six hours cleaning up the reception room. But I didn't clean up the reception room. I detailed the reception room. In other words, I'm going to clean this reception room as good as I'm going to be an engineer. So I went and I found the rubbing alcohol and Q-tips for the tape machines. And I cleaned the bottle opener around the Coke machine because it was all crusty and crappy. I mean, I really just detailed every bit of that reception room. Basically, at the end of the day, he came out and he looked at the room and he goes, oh, uh, we're doing some recording tonight. You want to come in? Uh, sure. He let down his guard a bit after that, huh? Well, I just, I was just going to prove myself that I was just going to be by far better than anybody else because it's a really tough gig. That first gig, you've got to show what you're made of, at least at that time. You know, that was back when we had the apprentice system. It was before there was all the recording schools and stuff. And the, the way you got in is you got in at the very bottom, you know, and you worked your way up. So I was just going to show with my attitude that I had what it took because so much of this job has always been, are you an okay person to hang out with? Because, because the hours are brutal. So I was just going to prove that I could be a cool guy, could take on difficult jobs and then get them done and be a fun person to be in the room with. When it comes to that old school way of, let's just say berating people, showing a rough exterior like this gentleman did, why do you think that that was so prevalent? It doesn't seem so prevalent now, but it was back in the day. Why do you think people decided to do that, decided to say things like, you don't know shit? Well, I'll tell you, George was from Queens. They're just a rough type of people. <laughs> there's just, you know, there's certain people from that area that just make their mark by just thinking that you've got to do that, you know, and, and it's a dog-eat-dog world. And you develop those traits if you live in certain areas. I agree with you. It's frowned upon now. And I think Martin Luther King does say that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice or something like that. You know, <laughs> I, I hope we're living in a better world. But when I look back on it, it was rough. I only lasted there a year. But in that year, I got an education of a lifetime. I ended up working on a number one song, a song called Sad Eyes by an artist named Robert John. And it was a really funny thing because Robert just wanted to cut the vocals with me in the control room and no one else. So before we started, he says to me, stop me if you hear anything that doesn't sound in tune. I said, really? <laughs> wow. So we cut the track and then they picked it for the single. And then the single went to number one. So <laughs> that's not bad. I think I got the education of a lifetime. You know, it's a tough business. There's a lot of real rough people in it and you got to learn to deal with that. Yeah, this may be like kind of lay down on the couch and let me analyze you kind of material <laughs> I'm about to ask. But looking back at who you were then, where do you think the idea of cleaning up that room in such a detailed manner came from? I mean, if somebody's coming at you really strong like that and your response is, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to tackle that room. It's going to be the cleanest you've ever seen it. The funny thing is that at that time, there was a thing called the EST training. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Yeah, please carry on. Well, the funny thing is I had just done that. And one of the things that they'd stressed in the EST training is basically the only person that stops you is yourself. The only thing you have power over is how you decide to react to a situation. You can't have power over the situation, but you have power over how you respond to the situation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just react instinctively without realizing, wait a minute, I have a decision to make right here. Someone pushes my buttons and I swear back at them. Well, wait a minute, I didn't have to do that. So I was really aware of where I wanted to go. And I knew that I had to do whatever it took to get there. 
I got to a point where I was being asked to do all sorts of crazy stuff. And the gig was over and I was going to go home. I was beat. And they came back. They said, hey, we need to repaint the control room. <laughs> I said, I've just been working for 14 hours. I was like, no, we need to repaint the control room. I said, well, I'm not going to do that. And I left. It was like, oh, God. And I thought to myself, you know, at this point in my career, if I don't do this, it's either this or pumping gas. And I used to use that as my phrase, you know, to get me through it. It's like, okay, wait a minute. It's either this or pumping gas. So I went out, I blew off some steam and came back and said, I'm ready to start painting. Let's go. <laughs> and you know what? We have to point out to the audience, the younger portion of the audience, there was a time when you would pull up to a service station, a gas station, oh, yeah. <laughs> and you'd run over a little thing that would cause something to ring, a little bell, and a, and a person would come out and, and pump your gas. Right. And self-service became a, a, a thing at some point. I, I don't remember the year it did, but... I think it was only in the state of Oregon where it stayed in place as a form of trying to employ people to give job opportunities. So that said, yeah. you went back and you painted. That's right. I, I painted and I was a happy camper. And I just realized that I was in no position to quit that job at that point because I'd be right back where I started. So like anything in your career, you stay with something until you get a better opportunity. You know, and that opportunity hadn't shown up the night that the paintbrush was thrust into my hands. So fine. I got over it and kept moving forward. Well, so after painting the control room, you know, yeah. how long did you stay there and where did you go next? Well, as it turns out, I started moving into doing sessions and I would do overdub sessions. And then this French artist showed up. The studio management thought that I was going to be just doing an overdub session and they showed up and it was a tracking session. So I did my first tracking session with this French artist who had flown in to Los Angeles. The guy's name was Alain Chamfort. And we did this tracking session, and it was just great. A couple of months ago, I was painting the room, and now I'm the dude sitting in the chair. You know, it's like, that's a way better place to be. And he didn't know that I was painting the room a couple of months ago. He just walked in and saw me sitting in the chair. I'm an engineer. It's like, woo. So we did the tracking session. And it was a really fun, cool track, a lot of synth, and they had a sequencer and stuff. We actually brought in a, like a Moog modular or something. And we did this amazing tracking session. We cut this track, we mixed it, and went back to France with it, and it sold like a million copies in France. It's a song called Manu Reva, and it was like 1979, and it was this huge kind of disco hit. But it wasn't really disco, it was kind of cooler than disco. So then, right after that, this Mexican artist shows up. His name is Juan Gabriel. And I do an album with him. And that becomes number one, everything, everywhere south of Chula Vista. So all of a sudden, I start getting these Spanish Latin artists and French artists showing up wanting to work with me. So I got a gig for the people who bought the studio, who ended up being a guy named Haim Saban, who went on to do the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And I was working with him and his partner, Shuki Levy, and we were doing soundtracks for all these children's animated TV shows all around the world. So anyway, I kind of kept on going in the studio and I got these other artists. And within three years, I got enough clients to where I just went independent. So basically at 26 years old, I went independent. It took me about three or four years and that was it. And what, what year was that that you went independent? I want to say like 83. Three. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So 79, I got my foot in the door. In 83, I was independent. And as an independent, knowing that we didn't have the technology that we do today, did you go and find a place to work or did you just travel around to different studios to work? It's funny. I was still loyal to some of the studios that I was, I was working at. I, George built a new studio in, in North Hollywood and I, I did a lot of work there. The old studio was owned by uh, Heim Saban and I did some work there. And then I moved around to other studios as well in the L.A. area. There was so many of them, but there was you know, a couple in North Hollywood I used to go to a lot and just kind of stay in the L.A. area. Just depending, if someone would show up with a project, we'd see what was available and negotiate a rate and go from there. Survival. I take it you were, you were being paid well enough to, to survive and not do anything else at the time? Yeah, I was being paid well enough to survive and not do anything else at the time. I wasn't being paid as well as I eventually got paid, but, but you know, it all, it's all a steady kind of a thing. But I was in show business and I was making a living. I, don't know, I had a pretty cool little one-bedroom house up in Studio City and 
I thought it was pretty cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how long did that did that last, and what kind of ups and downs did you see along the way? Well, like anything, it kind of comes and it kind of goes. I got into producing more, and then kind of hit a dead spot. And I was trying to think about what the progression was, but got into producing. Spend a lot of time with one artist, with this, with Juan Gabriel. I ended up moving out to El Paso, Texas, and helped him build a studio there. Did a lot of records there, but that kind of crashed and burned. And he he blew up with his label, so it's kind of like it's tough when you're producing a bunch of albums on spec with somebody, and all of a sudden they blow out with the label that you're kind of nowhere. So I went back and I met a really good friend who's still a good friend for life. His name is Craig Harris, and my wife at the time, Stacy, and I had, were working on a project where we were the band. The band was called Endangered Species. This is all very. This is all very deep here. I just, I don't know. That's my. That's really my jam. I'm going deep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so we put this band together, and we decided we needed the latest technology to, to do it. We enlisted Craig because he had a Synclavier. Mm. So we started working on this project, which we tried to sell, but it didn't go anywhere. And then at some point, Craig was doing all this sound design for TV commercials, and I just walked over there and said, I'd, I'd love to be your assistant <laughs> and kind of showed up. And I started working with Craig and we started doing a lot of sound design for national TV spots. Like we do Budweiser and Ford. And I learned a lot learning that technology, the digital technology, kind of before Pro Tools really kicked in. They had a thing called direct to disc, which was eight channels of hard disc recording. It's like, wow. Yeah. You know? <laughs> wow. Crazy. <laughs> you know, so I really got to learn that and work with Craig on a lot of stuff. And it was really useful, I think, to learn how to work in that format, which is basically a 30-second TV spot. But we were doing crazy sound design stuff, you know, speeding things up, slowing things down, sampling. Craig was known because he had done the effects for Back to the Future and a couple of large feature films. He'd done the special sound effects that only these esoteric computer geeks could figure out. And we got really known for that. And that was a really fun time. It was a really interesting place to go having burnt out on record production. It was a whole new avenue for that kind of geeky part of me to dive into because there was all this tech that was new and, and fun and engaging. And it paid well, I bet. It paid well. I mean, once again, it kind of ran its course. And then I set up my own studio, kind of continuing with the same thing. And then one day, a good friend of mine named Mark Mann, who I'd actually hired to be a MIDI guru back when MIDI was this really weird esoteric thing, he said that Jeff Lynn was looking for an engineer and would you like to come over and meet Jeff? Hmm. So I went over and met Jeff and that really changed my life. <laughs> oh, I bet it did. Yeah. I had such a fun time with him. What did you learn from Jeff? One thing I did learn was... Really early on, basically, he had his own studio, and I would go in there, and we you know it would just be me and him. He used to just make records one track at a time. Okay, first we're going to start with the hi-hat. You know, so, okay, <laughs> now snare drum. You know, it's like, wow. And it was so fun for me because that's how I made records, too. So we were building up these records, and he's so good, and he's funny, and he's just like a great guy to hang out with. So at some point, he was doing vocals, doing, and he started trying to figure out some harmony parts. And I said, hey, Jeff, what if you could go, nah. <laughs> and he stops and he looks at me. He goes, I don't do jazz. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit. I just realized it. And what I learned from Jeff was just to shut up and let the artist find their way. And I think that's probably one of the most valuable things I could have learned was just take a breath. Don't be the smartest guy in the room mm. and let him figure it out. Because if you tell them what you're thinking, then that's your record. But if you let them and give them, the, as a producer, if you give them the space to find it on their own, they could find something that's way better than anything you could have thought of. So that was a really valuable lesson for, for me, you know, and just know, know my place and know once again, it was, I had been a producer before I started working with Jeff. With Jeff, I was not a producer. So it was another one of those kind of humbling experiences, but Damn it, if you're going to learn from somebody who knows what they're doing, that's a good guy to hang out with. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Now, if I'm right, Bill Betrell also worked with Jeff Lynn. Was there any crossing over between the two of you? I met Bill. He came around a few times, but I think at that point, Jeff had kind of moved on. He'd also done a lot of work with Richard Dodd. And I think at that point, Richard had moved on to, to doing mastering. So I was kind of the new kid on the block for a while with Jeff. Okay. And obviously working with Jeff leads to other things. Yeah, it leads to some really amazing things. I mean, working with Jeff, Jeff was very spur of the moment, called me up. Hey, I want to do something. I got an idea. Okay, I'll be over in half an hour. Okay. So he calls one day and he goes, Ringo wants to come by and put some drums on. Can you make it? It's like, oh, no, sorry. <laughs> I've got to walk. I got to walk my dog. No. Right. <laughs> so I got to meet Ringo. It was just a blast. And then at some point, George came over and I got to meet George. This is a kind of a good story. So George shows up, and Jeff's working on some songs, and he, he wants George to play on them. And so George is going to play slide on one of the songs that Jeff's working on. And so Jeff's like, look, I want to get it all set up. So all he has to do is just sit down and play, right? I want to get the guitar tuned. I want to get everything, you know. So he had the guitar set up. He had the amp set up. And so I said, well, I need to get a sound a little bit. And I think that he had a guitar tech named Danny Farrington, just a ace guitar tech. And I think Danny had set up the guitar to make it so the frets were, it was off the frets so they could play it like a slide electric guitar. So we're getting a sound and Danny plays it and it's like, okay, I think we got a sound that's good. So George sits down and we play this track, we hit record. That guitar sounded so different with George playing it. It just sounded amazing. And that's right then and there when I realized just how much the person who plays the guitar is everything. That guitar just came alive when George played it. Totally different thing. Wow. And luckily, he didn't say, sounds like crap. <laughs> <laughs> you know, luckily, phew, you know, it, it, we got through it. And that was a lot of fun. It was just such a pleasure to meet those guys. You know, And then at some point, I got to meet McCartney. And we worked on something with McCartney. So it's like within a couple of years, I've met three of the Beatles. Wow. You know, it didn't get any better than that. Now, we're talking about Jeff Lynn, and you mentioned George Harrison. That's two guys out of the Traveling Wilburys which would eventually lead us to Tom Petty. At what point did Tom Petty become part of your world? Well, after George passed, there was this memorial concert that they did at the Royal Albert Hall in London called The Concert for George. Eric Clapton was putting the band together, and he asked Jeff to deal with the recording of it, which kind of meant me as the deputy. So we all went out to London, and I kind of supervised the recording of it, and then we went back after it was done and in Pro Tools went back and spent a good amount of time mixing it at Jeff's studio. So Tom Payne and the Heartbreakers were one of the artists at the concert. And so we had mixed one of the tracks and 
Jeff invited Tom over to listen to it. So that was, I think that was the first time that I met him. I don't think I met him at the concert because I was kind of stuck in the truck off in the parking lot. But we played him the track and he turned around. He goes, that was great. So good. <laughs> so, and then right after that, Jeff said, hey, Tom wants to come over and cut a track. Could you come over? It's like, no, I've got to walk the dog. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we went over, then we started cutting tracks with Tom. And not like, we're starting an album. It's just, it was just like, I'm just going to go cut a track, see what happens. We cut a track. It was great. It was really fun. And Mike Campbell was involved, and Tom and Jeff, and Tom's long-trusted roadie, Alan Wydell, Bugs is his nickname, we just go over there every day and spend a couple of days, cut another track. And we're just having a great time with this thing. It was really fun. It was a, such a fun project to work on. That eventually ended up being the Highway Companion album, which is the album that Tom did after The Last DJ. So that was early 2000s it came out. And so your relationship with Tom continued on for quite a bit, didn't it? Well, after we did that album, I remember getting a call from his manager saying, hey, uh, Tom's wondering if you might be interested in, in doing this thing you know, or whatever. And I said, sure, you know, <laughs> of course. So I started getting calls. And at some point, we started working on this Running Down a Dream film. There was a documentary that was done in 2007, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. And it was the uh, Running Down a Dream documentary. And it was all about just the story of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Mm. It was a lot of fun, and, and I had to go and pull a bunch. They, they, they needed music for it. They wanted to find original music, so I went through his library and found every kind of jam. because They needed instrumental music to just glue the film together, besides the actual songs that they were going to use from the band. So I started going through the library and finding all this stuff. And when they were putting the film together, they were, did a lot of interviews with Tom's previous band, which is called Mud Crutch. Mm -hmm. So... Tom got this idea after he saw the film. It's like, why don't I do an album with those guys? So Mud Crutch was uh, Randall Marsh on drums, Tom Ledden on guitar, Tom Ledden, Bernie Ledden's brother. And then it was Tom on bass and then Mike on guitar and Ben Mon on keyboards. So we got to do this thing and Tom called me up and he says, look, I want to bring these guys in, but I don't want to go into a studio and have it all be intimidating. I want to see if we can record it at our clubhouse they had a rehearsal space out in the valley mm -hmm. where they just kind of kept their gear and they'd rehearse before shows and tours and stuff and so with the good help of some people who i knew at avid uh, robert scoville who was their front of house engineer was also really had a stake in the future of digital performance consoles they had a way where you could put the band through a live board and set them up in the rehearsal space with some monitor wedges and just give them a decent monitor mix while they're playing with no headphones but they could also take all the sound that they got from the mics and they could pipe it into Pro Tools. So I set up a Pro Tools control room in the next room. And while they were just running these songs down and playing them live, I was recording it. And we managed to make it to where the bleed wasn't that bad. Since it was live anyway, whatever sounds were going to be recorded, you're going to get. It's not like you could go back and fix stuff. And we ended up recording the first Mud Crutch album with them. And it was just such a joy. At some point, I remember playing it back to Tom. I said, you know, Tom, I, I kind of think I should be co-producer on this. I'm waiting for the, uh-oh. Waiting for that goes, Jeff Lynn moment of, I don't do jazz. <laughs> exactly. And he went, yeah, you're right. Because I probably, can't, I can't give you anything. It's like, okay, I don't care. It's credit. That's good. That's cool. <laughs> and then I had a lawyer at the time and lawyer called me up. He goes, I don't know how this happened, but Warner Bros. just called. They found a point for you. you know? <laughs> I'm like, really? <laughs> I thought, I love this guy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I think for me, it's, it's, the recognition was really nice. And I never really thought of myself as a producer producer who finds the material. And I'm a co-producer. I work with people who know what they're doing. And I just help them. I just put my two cents in. Well, for the audience, I'll put a link in the show notes because Robert's actually been on the show and I'll put a link to his episode. That interview took place before Tom died, actually. So audience, you can get two sides of the Tom Petty equation here with Ryan and, uh, and Robert. There's something I want to explore a little bit in that recording scenario. So I've seen the video. There's a video out there on YouTube that I think was a, an avid promo thing. Robert's in it, you're in it, and it 
kind of details everything that you just laid out, talking about recording this thing. I want you to talk a little bit about working with other audio professionals in that kind of environment or in any environment where there's more than one audio person involved. What do you think is important in cooperation when the goal is to, of course, in this case, capture the band? What's important in regards to egos and roles and what you say and how you say it to people? I think it's obviously number one is respect. I think everybody has to have respect for each other. I think everybody needs to know that we're all doing the best we can <laughs> with the tools that we have. And it's not going to help if there's a problem. It's not going to help to have a hissy fit. You know, it's just, it just doesn't work. So, you know, if it's like, I'm not getting this mic or whatever, or this isn't happening here. I could hit the talk back and I could broadcast it to the whole room, or I could just kind of walk over and, and, and talk to someone, you know? So I, I, you know, I used to call it vibe patrol. Mm -hmm. I think it's incumbent on people who are the sound people working with the artists that they should never be the biggest thing in the room. If there's some kind of issue between sound people, then they should quietly resolve it and try and keep the vibe as cool as possible. I, I think our job is to be really transparent. The last thing you want is someone thinking that this thing might not get recorded or right, right or whatever. I mean, I knew that when I was engineering in a control room at a studio, as soon as an artist started looking over at the meters and going, oh, well, well, what about that? I knew I'd lost. I had lost the war. So my job is just to have that just be invisible and not talk about tech and stuff like that. Well, let's talk about where we're punching and we're punching on the third bar of the chorus and I'm getting right out before the fourth bar, that kind of stuff. I just want to talk about the music and I want to keep all the stuff with my cohorts really under the radar. I used to have that discussion with my second engineers when I was in first engineering. Just don't walk up to me and have this discussion about something in front of the client. I don't want to know about it. We'll talk about that on the side. Yeah. And it helps to instill confidence in them. Yeah, exactly. So you're talking to us, I assume, from Topanga in California. And in this room that you're in now, this is your studio. Is this a standalone studio or is this part of your house? Or We got this house in Topanga and there was this little 12 by 24 shed out in the back, separate structure. And I said, this would be a great studio. And so... <laughs> what every just, audio engineer thinks yeah. when we see a shed and So it's a just a, it's a, a funky shed that was already here. It's got like minimal soundproofing or anything like that. Basically, I asked somebody, how come I don't have a problem with it? Because it sounds great. I mean, I love the way it sounds. I know exactly what I hear in here and how it translates to the real world. I said, how come I don't have a problem? He goes, well, you see these walls are really thin. Basically, Topanga Canyon is your bass trap. Like, oh, I see. So, oh, so the, well, all the sound just goes straight out. You know, then people hear some dull thud in the background. <laughs> so it's, it's great. Pete Troge said that you and I would get along because we could talk Dolby Atmos. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is Dolby Atmos something that you've been into for the last couple of years, or is it something you're just getting into? Where are you at with it? Well, I was always trying to push for multi-channel or you know immersive audio, let's put it that way. And even back when we were doing an album called The Live Anthology, which was with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and this was in 2009, basically we went through every single live tape that was in his library from like 1975 to 2008. We didn't really worry about whether it was, the songs were just connected because they flow good together. So you could have a song that they'd done live in 1977 segue into a song that was from 2007. And I really wanted to do a 5-1 mix of it. And at that point, I think that was when the 5-1 stuff was coming out. There was a market, and Elliot Shiner started doing these 5-1 mix. Remember, The mm -hmm. Eagles was one of those first albums that came out in 5-1. So I was into 5-1. So we did 5-1, and then we did it as a Blu-ray disc, which was really cool because you didn't have to compress it. And you could really sound good because Dolby and DTS had a better version of 5-1. So we put that album, and then we did an album with Tom Payne and the Heartbreakers called Mojo. And once again, I was able to do a 5-1 mix of that. We did an album called Hypnotic Eye. I did a 5-1 mix of that, which is really good. I think they're still on eBay for like 
250 bucks or something. <laughs> but anyway, the point is I've always been into this multi-channel audio, this immersive audio thing. And when Atmos came in into play, I was just so lucky that we had another chance at giving people this experience. Mm-hmm. So for me, I set this room up as an Atmos room in 2020. Had a bunch of guys show up in masks and stuff in the middle of the pandemic and doing a major studio upgrade. But these guys did a great job. I had got a lot of help from Dolby and Kerry Thomas at Dolby, and I got a lot of help from ATC and the guys at Transaudio in Las Vegas. And we put this together, and I started mixing in it. At some point, I mixed Wildflowers. The first two discs, we did a deluxe version of Wildflowers. First disc was Wildflowers, the old original album. And then there's a second disc called All the Rest, which is an album that I worked on with Tom before he passed. We did that in Atmos, and I just remember listening to it in this room and just going, God, he would have loved that. He just would have loved it because for Tom and for all of us, really, you know, the music is kind of our religion. It's a religious experience. When it's really done right, it just makes you feel a certain way. There's just kind of an awe to it. That feeling you get from it, you really get that with Atmos. If you're sitting in a room and you're listening to it with speakers, and I have a 714 room, so that means you've got three in the front, two surrounds on the side, two surrounds in the back, and then four speakers up top. You listen to a good piece of music through a system like that and mixed well, it'll make you cry. You know? I mean, I, I seriously, I, I just teared up at some point and I was like, God, I wish you could have heard this. So uh, that's why I'm big on it. It's just, it's just, it's an experience. I mean, music is great in no matter how you hear it, mm-hmm. but there's just a certain kind of an experience you get yeah. you listen to it like that. What would you say to those who are on the fence with Dolby Atmos or even the naysayers who say, oh, yeah, whatever, quad, five, one, here we are again. What would you say to those people? Come on over to my house and listen to it. <laughs> because if you have a good system, it'll blow your mind. And, and what I'm really hoping is that they're going to be able to get it integrated into car audio. Kerry Thomas at Dolby showed up at my studio about six months ago or so, in a Tesla, which one is the SUV? The S? Uh, That's the X. Okay. All right. So he shows up in that car and Dolby has put in an Atmos sound system in the car. He says, you got to hear this. He says, I just listened to Wildflowers and he said, I put on It's Good to Be King and I had to pull over. (laughs) So he put on It's Good to Be King in the car, and I'm like, oh my God. I don't, it's again, I think I actually teared up. I mean, seriously, I'm a, you know, I'm a cynical dude, but I teared up. It was just amazing. So, my hope for Atmos is that we can use the, the spatial audio that Apple is wanting in headphones, and it's, it's cool in headphones, and it's definitely it's a little more 3D than stereo in the headphones, but I'm hoping that. The real advantage of Atmos is that it's scalable. So when these things that we mixed get played in different systems, they rise to the occasion. In other words, you can take these mixes that we're making and put them on a smaller system, and it sounds great. Put them on a soundbar, it sounds good. Put it on a bigger system, it sounds amazing. It's the same mix. And I think that's where they really did something that was very smart about it. So anything that we're creating in Atmos has the ability to sound good now in your headphones, but it also has the ability to sound amazing should the car audio world open up, should Amazon decide that you can use more than two of their little speakers. Because imagine if you had these speakers and you could, you know, why not get five of them, you know, these little Echo Studios and make them a proper Atmos system. You know, it's all scalable. So I'm hoping that the playback systems will keep on improving but the fact is the content we're creating will work and will end given the right playback system will be just gobsmacking. Yeah. Well, it's exciting times. I have been moving so slowly into it, like at a snail's pace. My controller has been built and it's shipping Friday to me. So I have yet to implement everything. Are you doing mastering in Atmos then? Is that what you're thinking? No, no, no. I'm going to simply be doing mixing in Atmos. Okay. Yeah. Right. I look forward to it. I think it's going to be a good time. I I feel terrible because I've been telling my listeners, you know, oh, I'm getting into Atmos. And it's like, oh, I just ordered this and this is taking forever and this is taking forever. And primarily because I just didn't charge everything on a credit card and say, 
overnight it. You know, instead I sold a bunch of old gear to pay for it so that I wouldn't be too out of pocket for it. Yeah. And, you know, as an engineer, there certainly is a learning curve to this thing. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to get anywhere without Dolby holding my hand, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a pretty steep curve. But, you know, what I tend to do when I have these things is I, I keep very detailed notes <laughs> and I have checklists. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, open this software, open that software, do this, do that. Every time I do something, I always kind of make sure that I document what I did so I can get back to it. But I found with Atmos, I found you can have a pretty simple workflow and a fairly simple setup and really get a lot with it. The kind of music that I'm doing doesn't have to have stuff flying around and doing crazy stuff. Right. You just need to find a place for it just to give you a sense of space and put it in that place. And it's just beautiful. You get to hear things that you just wouldn't normally hear when it's all coming out of two speakers. Let me shift gears on you if I could. As an audio professional, not all of us are the most financially savvy people. So in order to survive and in order to keep doing what we want to do, what is your overarching financial advice to others out there, whether they've been in the business a long time or they're just getting into it? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I really don't know. I don't know how I'm still doing this. I don't know. Every so often I go, hey, I'm still in show business. I've been just lucky because I've just, I've somehow I've managed to fall into these various situations. And, you know, at the same time, look, obviously what someone said, luck is the intersection between hard work and opportunity. You show up, you get a shot, and then you got to bring all that preparation that you've done. So it doesn't hurt to be prepared. I guess that's all I can say, but I really don't know how you sustain it. It's a, it's a crazy world. I came into the business at a time when it was, There was ways for people to get in. I think now everybody has to do it on their own. They've got to find their own way in. It used to be that the tools that it took to make music and record music were very expensive. And therefore, the gatekeepers were the record labels. People who could say, okay, I'll give you $100,000 to make an album. Well, now anybody can make an album. So I think you've got to be even more entrepreneurial. I didn't really have to be entrepreneurial. I just had to put in slog in the hours and not get fired and try and do a good job. I think it's probably more difficult now, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. But I really don't have any advice. Sometimes people would ask me, should I go spend $100,000 on a recording school? You know, and I said, well, okay, but then you'll, you might be in the same place. I don't know. I said, well, maybe you should get some gear and you should go to the local college and see if there's any student filmmakers who need a soundtrack for their film. I mean, everyone's going to have to make opportunities happen here. Absolutely. Or maybe you get a really good system and you go, you find some band that's just playing in a club and saying, hey, I want to record you. Yeah, I'm on the fence as far as a younger generation coming up because some people, I think, need to go to school and others, I think, would benefit from spending a few thousand dollars on some gear and just getting in and working and trying and failing to figure it out. Yeah. So that's kind of what I think too. But, you know, having said that, I'm sure the schools will say there are opportunities and I'm sure there are opportunities for people who graduate from those programs, but you know, you still got to go and grind it out no matter where you come from, whatever you do, you still got to put in the effort and just really persevere and hopefully be the kind of person that people want to hang out with. At the end of the day, that's what it boils down to, huh? I think that's nine-tenths of it. It's, it's like, you know, I used to call it the hairdresser rule. You know what I mean? Like, you might not have the best hairdresser, but he doesn't make you uncomfortable for that hour that you're, <laughs> you have to hang out with him. You know? <laughs> that's great. Well, we are out of time, and I want to point out to the audience, I will put a link in the show notes to Ryan's website, which is ulyate.com. That's U-L-Y-A-T-E.com. That'll be there for you. And you can check out what Ryan is up to. Ryan, thank you so much for being here today. I love hearing about your journey and I appreciate you sharing it with me and the audience. Well, it was a pleasure. I really, I really enjoyed it too. Well, thank you. You take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for. 
giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Ryan Elliott here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. And as usual, you know, if you have a question, you can always reach out, Matt at workingclassaudio.com. I would love to hear from you. And if you have a guest suggestion, of course, guest suggestion form is at workingclassaudio.com. Go check that out. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew and Marie Plo in the editing. Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song. And that magical voice you hear at the top of every show, Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn if you can. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.